0: Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week we're going to talk about a rare good week for Democrats and progressives and just people who uh, who believe in the rule of law. Um, first up, we're going to be joined by Paul Waldman. He writes for The Washington Post, a regular guest. And we'll talk to him about the surprise deal West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced on Wednesday. Uh, surprising everybody, certainly surprising me. And then we'll speak with historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat, an expert in authoritarianism, about a bunch of new reports on the effort to hold Trump and his, uh, his inner circle accountable for their ham-fisted attempted coup. Um, but first, I wanted to just flag a paper I saw this week by a group of researchers at Yale University Um, these scholars took a hard look at some popular media narratives about Russia, about the ostensible uh, resilience of the Russian economy. And they found that, um, yeah, that those stories are, you know, to put it, um, well, the technical term is bullshit. The researchers concluded that the Sanctions re- regime, the um, unprecedented sanctions regime imposed by uh, Europe and the U.S. and their allies are, are, um, are being felt in a very big way in Russia. I'm going to quote from the working paper here, um, and this has not been peer reviewed. Uh, talking about the flawed conventional wisdom, the authors write, and I quote, that these misunderstandings persist is not surprising since the invasion the Kremlin's economic releases have become increasingly cherry-picked, selectively tossing out unfavorable metrics while releasing only those that are more favorable. They argue that, you know, these um, carefully selected statistics are then kind of picked up by well-intentioned journalists that... Um, end up amplifying basically spin, Kremlin spin. They go on from our analysis. It becomes clear business retreats and sanctions are catastrophically crippling the Russian economy. Um, Russia's strategic positioning as a commodities exporter has irrevocably deteriorated, uh, Russian imports have largely collapsed and the country faces stark challenges, securing crucial inputs, parts and technology from hesitant trade partners. Um, this is leading to widespread supply shortages within its domestic economy. Um, despite Putin's delusions of self-sufficiency, Russian domestic production has come to a complete standstill with no capacity to replace lost businesses. As a result, Russia has lost companies representing 40% of its GDP, gross domestic product, um, and they say, looking ahead, there is no path out of economic oblivion for Russia as long as the allied countries remain unified in maintaining and increasing sanctions pressure against Russia. Uh, defeating, defeatist headlines arguing that Russia's economy has bounced back are simply not factual. The facts are that by any metric and on any level, the Russian economy is reeling. So there's that. Um, Russia's military offensive seems to be uh, to have ground to a halt at least temporarily, uh, we'll see. We'll see what that portends for the near future. Ukrainian forces have made good use of new longer-range weapons to degrade um, Russian logistics. They've been hitting dozens of staging depots and ammo dumps and the like, and they are preparing to retake the key city of Kherson. So here. Uh, here we go. This is this is happening. That's, that's what's going on over there. And here at home, we're going to move right along with the show. Stay tuned. We'll take a quick break and then come right back with Paul Walton. Calling the world from isolation. is right now. contract I don't want this isolation. See the state of me now Come in the heart with the right fall Right now that's the ball where we be changed Welcome back I'm joined now by Paul Waldman, who writes for The Washington Post's Plum Line, and also The American Prospect. Paul, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thank you. It is
1: always a pleasure to be with you.
0: It is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday morning, the day after West Virginia Senator and King of America, Joe Manchin, announced that he had cut a deal with his party on uh, some of Joe Biden's key agenda items. We're still Awaiting the fine print, but the legislative package, from what we know so far, would include $370 billion for investments in climate. Uh, Democratic leaders say that will reduce America's greenhouse gas emissions by 40% relative to, I believe, a 2005 baseline. I'm not exactly sure how they're calculating that. Um, It will also allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices for... uh, 15 or 20 medications, which has long been a priority for the Democrats. Uh, It would extend special Obamacare subsidies enacted earlier in the pandemic for uh, three more years, which uh, is going to help avoid a a major premium hike at a very bad time when budgets are already kind of stretched thin. And it would more than pay for itself by closing some high-end tax loopholes, going after tax cheats, and with a 15% minimum tax on corporations. According to the New York Times, and I quote, the most, effect, the most immediate effect of the bill, energy experts said, will be to supercharge the growth of wind turbine, solar panel, and electrical vehicle production in the United States. So this sounds good. This all comes on the heels of the passage of a bipartisan bill um, that would encourage more domestic semiconductor production, so-called chips bill. Paul, Republicans are squawking about that, about how that played out, how all of this played out. Uh, They're accusing Democrats of something. I don't know exactly what, what, what's that about? What are they so pissed about?
1: Well, it's just the possibility that perhaps Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin are clever Machiavellian operators in a way that we hadn't thought they were because before the chips bill was passed, uh, Mitch McConnell threatened that if Democrats moved forward with reconciliation, then he would pull Republican support for chips, even though the two don't really have anything to do with each other. But uh, the idea, uh, I guess, was that if Democrats were going to do something that they wanted, just the, the threat of that was enough for McConnell to pull the plug on this thing that, in theory at least, both Republicans and Democrats wanted. Um, so he came out and said that. And then we were in this, this place for a while where nobody knew if reconciliation was going to happen at all, if Democrats were actually going to use this tool that they have to pass something with only Democratic support and 50 votes. Um, and then CHIP's passed the Senate. And so now it's out of their hands. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, Manchin and Schumer come out and say, oh, we have this agreement. And the thing about it is that uh, they had to have been planning this for a while because you know, it's a very big bill. Now, you know, parts of it have been circulating for for some time. And I guess it, it's possible that they might have just slapped it together in a couple of days. But, you know, writing legislative text, text takes time. And it certainly seems as though um, this was something that they, that they had planned and they just kept it very, very quiet. Uh, and then once CHIPS was safely passed and they had that, in hand, then they unveiled this new uh, bill that they're intending to pass through reconciliation. So, when you hear the Republicans squawking, it seems to be that they think they got played, um, and we're not really used to that. You know, we're yeah. used to Absolutely. Mitch McConnell being this kind of opposition savant, where you know he might not be all that good at passing legislation himself, but he's very good at undermining whatever Democrats want to do, um, and it at least appears. That this time Chuck Schumer got the better of him, but yeah, you know there's a, there's obviously some behind the scenes story that's very difficult to um to discern. and that's the this one of the the things about the Senate in particular. you know there's always often a story about legislation, the things that are happening that you don't really know, even reporters who work on Capitol Hill can have trouble uh, and the Senate is particularly bad in that regard that. It's, it can be like pulling teeth to get information out of any of the offices, especially when there's something like this going on that's complicated and uh, delicate, and they don't want to release a lot of information before they're ready. And so there's some kind of backstory, but I don't know if we'll ever get all the details.
0: I mean, it's worth noting that how unusual it is for nothing to have leaked out of this process as it was ongoing. You are right. It's unusual for Dems to use their power um, in such a cutthroat way. I have to say that I, I quite like it. Um, <clears throat> and we should note that after all of this went down, um, Senate Republicans blocked a bill that would have provided health care for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. So um, kind of in a feat of, in a in a, a, um, a, a tantrum, if you will, they did. And that, that had had broad bipartisan support as well. Anyway, this deal um, may be followed, we don't know for sure, by another bipartisan bill codifying the right of same-sex couples to marry. Um, and there, there is some word that maybe Republicans are going to withdraw support of that in response to Democrats having the nerve to govern. Um, <clears throat> but all of this is in addition to, if we go back to 2021, A $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, which was passed along a party line vote, and a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, There was also a a weak, but nonetheless significant gun safety bill also passed with 15 Republican votes in the Senate. Paul, suddenly it kind of looks like Joe Biden's quest for bipartisanship and kind of slow grinding approach to his own caucus, which holds uh, a razor-thin 50-50 majority, 51-50 majority with um, Kamala Harris serving as a tiebreaker, um, it's, it looks like like Joe Biden's approach has resulted in a wildly productive first two years, With uh, given how close the Senate is. Do people like me who have scoffed at the administration's like almost obsessive quest for bipartisanship and said that Joe Manchin would never negotiate in good faith. Do, do we have to eat some crow?
1: Well, I guess it depends whether you want to see the glass as half full or half empty. Hmm. And if you stack up the things that they did, uh, you can make a pretty good case that that's a strong legislative record. And if we go back to Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, what we see is that you know they got a few big bills passed and they had a lot of failures. Uh, and legislating is just really, really hard, even under the best of circumstances. And both Clinton and Obama, in their two years, had much bigger majorities than Joe Biden did. And this is a, a little factoid that I that I like to repeat, which is that going all the way back to Andrew Jackson, there has never been a Democratic president who, upon their election, had smaller congressional majorities than Joe Biden does right now. So. He has uh, an extraordinary challenge to be able to pass things with a 50-50 Senate and a House where he's only got a margin of a few votes. Um, So you can say, you know, these are some pretty significant things, and that's a a real accomplishment, Um, and, you know, especially given uh, the recalcitrance of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. That it's quite extraordinary. Now, on the other hand, if you want to look at the glasses half empty, you can go back and look at the things that he proposed when he was a candidate, where he had an incredibly expansive, ambitious agenda, uh, and on most of those things, it's just nowhere. Like you, uh, uh, you may remember that uh, I wrote a couple of columns uh, back during in twenty twenty, arguing that. Even though you know we had this long, extended argument, people may recall about about healthcare during the Democratic primaries, and there were people uh, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who were proposing ambitious Medicare for all plans. Uh, Kamala Harris, when she was a candidate, called hers Medicare for all, although it was not quite exactly. Uh, and. Uh, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg were sort of the moderates who had public option plans and people criticized them from the left and said, no, this isn't uh, this isn't doesn't go far enough. And I wrote a couple of columns saying that actually Biden's plan was pretty darn good. It was much farther than he had ever proposed to go before, much farther than the Affordable Care Act went. Um, And so we had a lot of those kinds of debates about the details of what they were going to do. And a lot of that stuff is just nowhere. Like, you know, you can go to archive.org to the internet wayback machine and go find Joe Biden's healthcare plan, but nobody's talking about it. And there's no real legislation to create the kind of ambitious public option that he was trying to create. And so, you know, if you want to assess this presidency, you can look at stuff like that and say, wow, it has been nothing but compromise and defeat and incrementalism, um, but you can also look at what actually has been accomplished and compare it to what other presidents have managed to do and said, say, you know, so far in these two years, and these two years may be all he has to really pass legislation, the record is not too bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the context, that 50-50 Senate, that is the all-important context. And it's important to remember that we almost did not have a 50-50 Senate and those two um, special races in Georgia had not gone the way that they did, you know, it would have been a completely different two year period with uh, Mitch McConnell blocking nominees, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that that's, that has to be the, the framework, you know, that we, that we look at all this through. Um, <clears throat> now, before all of this went down and, and let me just say, you know, we spend so much time covering bad news and I, this, like I feel like this is what a, a good week looks like. In our second segment, we're going to talk about another reason to be a bit hopeful, which is um, a bunch of new reporting showing that prosecutors in the DOJ and in Georgia are indeed probing uh, at least members of Trump's inner circle, if not Trump himself, which is, I think heartening for um, a lot of us who are, have been deeply concerned and frustrated that um, you know at, at the apparent impunity, of those at the top of the uh, of the queue. Anyway, um, before all of this went down, you were actually writing that the Democrats could defy the usual midterm trends and are not necessarily facing a shellacking. And uh, regular listeners know that I've been preaching humility on this, in the sense that we continue to be in uncharted territory, right? The the handful of times when a president's party did not lose a lot of seats in his first midterm um, have followed some sort of crisis. And here we are, hopefully at the tail end of the pandemic uh, and less than two years after a failed coup attempt by the previous president. uh, We'll be voting just months after a rogue court overturned Roe v. Wade. And as the disastrous consequences of that continue to be felt, so, I mean other than the no, unknowable nature of the future, <clears throat> what do you see as as some of the reasons why Dems could could surprise the pundits this fall?
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you emphasized the could because we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm certainly not making a prediction. No, um, but if you look at the all the years when uh this sort of dominant pattern holds, when the president's party loses big, they're all kind of similar. There's sort of a a baseline of factors that make that happen. You know, the president comes into office. There's some kind of backlash. The uh, opposition party is more angry, and therefore they're more motivated. Uh, The presidency inevitably, you know, goes through stumbles and difficulties, and the president's own party tends to be a little bit demobilized there disappointed in some of the things they didn't get. And so that's the basic dynamic that tends to produce years like 2018 and 2014 and 2010, when the president's party loses big. And we have two examples of when it didn't happen, as you mentioned, uh, 1998, which was right after Bill Clinton's impeachment, where the public is pretty fed up with Republicans. Um, and then 2002, which when we were still, we were in this transition period where we were still in the kind of wake of 9-11 and we were, and the Bush administration was already ramping up war fever to get us to go into Iraq in 2003. So, uh, there the Bush administration and Republicans managed to stave off a defeat, but those are two completely different kind of situations. As you say, they're both crises of a sort, but, uh, but, but they're each kind of sui generis. And so the question is, is this year sort of sui generis too in some way that will allow Democrats to, to hold off um, what the uh, what the usual pattern would be? And one of the things that I think should give us pause, although, again, this could change, is that there's something very curious going on. Pollsters often ask what's called a generic ballot, which means they ask people, if the election were tomorrow, would you vote for a Democrat or Republican for Congress? And given the fact that Joe Biden's approval ratings are around 39%, you'd expect that Republicans would have an enormous lead in the generic ballot, but they don't. It's basically tied, which is rather curious. Um, And what you're seeing is uh, a whole bunch of factors that are sort of elevating the degree to which Democratic voters may be engaged and potentially turning away uh, independent voters from Republicans. So you have uh, things like, of course, the the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, which in itself is something that will motivate Democrats. And now that has been followed by this kind of rush among Republican states to pass the most draconian abortion laws they can, which are inevitably then followed by stories like we saw out of Ohio and Indiana, the 10-year-old rape victim who has to cross state lines to go get an abortion. And then the uh, right-wing attorney general of Indiana decides that he's going to go after the Doctor who performed it for her. Um, and so these kind of stories are coming out. That's something that that could energize Democrats. You have this sort of real extremism problem among Republicans, where they're really, you know, th- that's one of the big stories of the moment is the election denialism, the kind of conspiracy theories, the abortion extremism, all these sorts of things that that make uh, that could potentially make independent voters say, you know what, maybe we'll just stick with the status quo for now because these guys are pretty nuts. Uh, that could play a factor. Um, you have also the fact that Republicans have nominated a lot of terrible candidates. Uh, and this is especially important in the Senate, maybe not so much in the House where people don't necessarily know all that much about their, their candidates. But you know, you've know, you got people like Herschel Walker in Georgia, who was just a disaster. Um <laughs> You know, JD Vance in Ohio is proving to be far weaker than people thought he was going to be. There are a bunch of races like that where the Republican uh, candidate is not so great. Maybe the Democrat is running stronger than people expected. Um, And then, of course, you know, the final factor is the big one, Donald Trump. And he, I, I think it's fair to say, is just kind of itching to declare his presidential candidacy. And at the very least, he cannot keep himself out of the news. He's so desperate for attention. Um, And, you know, the fact is, Donald Trump is very bad for Republican fortunes. You know, he, they lost terribly in 2018 when he was the president. He lost in 2020. And the more he's in the news, the more Democrats are going to be motivated to get out to vote. So you put all that together and it doesn't mean that, Democrats are just going to ride right in and hold on to their majorities. But it certainly makes it more likely than it would be just in kind of an ordinary midterm election where things are pretty bad for the president and voters are ready to just make some kind of a change.
0: You know, in addition to this, to the freakazoids that they have nominated for in a bunch of races, um, There have also been a huge number of bruising primary contests among Republicans. There was just an analysis released by Ballotpedia relative to 2020. um, The number of Democratic primaries, uh, the share, the share of, uh, of, no, the number of Democratic primaries this year relative to 2020 is down by 8.2 percent but Republican primaries have increased by 55%. So what you have is a lot of like MAGA, you know, extremists, challenging incumbents. Um, it's, it's often vicious. Um, 32 in state legislative races, 32 democratic incumbents have lost primaries, but it's 108 Republican incumbents have lost primaries. So this, There is a a difference in that sense as well. You mentioned the generic ballot poll. Here's something that I've been thinking about, and I don't know if this is just me, my perception, or if this is real. So in 538's average of the generic ballot polls, um, Republicans currently hold a 0.2 point lead. It's a tie, right, over the Democrats. All throughout 2018, Democrats had a huge lead in this in this measure, they were between, say, six and 11 points all all year, that whole cycle. Massive gap. Um, and uh, throughout this year, the GOP's biggest lead in that generic ballot average has been two and a half or three points. Trump, like Biden, was historically unpopular. So here's my question. I don't recall reading a million stories about how Trump's poor favorability ratings were going to um, doom Republicans in the 2018 midterms. There was certainly, you know, allusions to headwinds, but um, it's such a matter of faith this year among pundits and reporters. Am I just not remembering it correctly or, or was the coverage different?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm not so sure. And I think that we always have to uh, check ourselves when we try to remember how how yeah. things were covered because what tends to happen is that we remember the stuff that made us mad. You know, I think I, I think this is a bipartisan problem that when you're thinking back on how you were covered, I mean, it's why uh, it's why that you know Republicans are convinced that that their candidates are always terribly punished in the press and the media is so liberal. And it's not that they're just making it up, it's because whenever they see a story they don't like, it sticks in their minds and all the stories that Democrats might not like, they just pass over them and say, oh, well, that must be just the truth. Um, so, uh, so I don't, I, you know, I think that there were probably, as I remember it, it was just sort of the standard thing that yes, this is a midterm coming up and the president's party usually does poorly. And, but, you know, there were also things like uh, not long before the election, Donald Trump started to talk about how there were these caravans of, you know, immigrant criminals coming in to invade the country. And that got a huge amount of coverage. Um, And it just didn't work. Like it was clearly a midterm ploy uh, and it just failed. And so, um, you know, I think there were things like that where where there was a lot of speculation about, oh, you know, this could be different because of this, and it wasn't. And maybe we'll look back and say the things that we're talking about now that might make this year different turn out to not make much of a difference either. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that that also one of the things that's happening now is that there's there's a huge focus in the press on Joe Biden's troubles um, for a number of different reasons. But one thing that I that I would point out is that the the story of oh, the president is doing terrible. Uh, is a story that the Washington Press loves to write, uh, but they also like to write the comeback story. So it could be that if his fortunes turn around for whatever reason, that um, that's a story that would that they'll that they'll enjoy writing too, and he'll he'll get a lot of positive press.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I'm not uh, holding my breath for the comeback kid coverage, although it would certainly <laughs> be appropriate. I you know what I think is is um, maybe coloring my memory of this is that you're right. There was a, there was. Frequent, you know, references to it being in midterms and the party in power tending to fare poorly, but there was also a million stories about, you know, Trump supporters in this Midwest diner continuing to stick with him. And you're not seeing anything like that with Joe Biden, Paul Waldman. I believe we are about out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thank you. Folks stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and come right back with, Uh, Ruth and yeah, stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm pleased to be joined now by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is a historian at NYU and New York University, an expert in authoritarianism. She's the author of the book Strongman, and she also has a substack, which I find very useful for uh, interpreting events these days. It's called Lucid, Professor Ben-Ghiat. Welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thank you. Um, So we've had guests on... Both sides of a debate that's been kind of roiling criminal justice experts for the past year and a half or two years. One camp has been very certain that the Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland had concluded that going after um, Donald Trump and also members of his inner circle would be perhaps too destructive for the country. Uh, they prioritized restoring the agency's reputation for independence as a top priority. Um, And this camp often pointed to a lack of court filings, uh, a lack of grand jury leaks, as evidence that the DOJ was focused solely on, like, lower-level rioters, uh, the militia members just above them, um, but were shy about going after those at the top of this sprawling and multifaceted faceted. Uh, plot to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The other camp was telling us that there has, in fact, been quite a bit of activity indicating that DOJ was investigating people within Trump's inner circle and um, and that the agency was likely building cases from the bottom up. So um, there were several reports this week from The New York Times, The Associated Press, uh, The Washington Post. Perhaps I'm overlooking some reports that. All of a sudden, this rush of news that the DOJ is looking very hard at Trump, as well as others involved in the so-called fake elector scheme. Um, we saw new emails from one lawyer involved in that scheme who actually used the phrase fake electors in an email with um, Trump campaign staff. A grand jury heard testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, who was um, the senior advisor to Trump's last chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And was also arguably the most influential witness before the January 6th hearings. And Merrick Garland himself told NBC uh, in an interview this week that he wouldn't hesitate to charge Trump if that's where the facts lead, regardless of whether he announced his uh, candidacy for 2024. So um, my question is, uh, do you sense that the January 6th select committee's public hearings and these new developments have shifted Uh, expectations among, you know, elite observers, among the public, among legal experts. Your thought about this kind of all this new reporting coming out this week?
2: Yeah, I'm not a legal expert myself, but um, I think that given the caution that the Department of Justice has shown so far, I think it's quite significant um, that there's been this development. I also think as somebody who studies you know, how democracies get wrecked, um, I think it's extremely important to stand up for the rule of law and uh, not be deterred by um, the idea that there could be civil unrest or that it's unprecedented. These are some of the things that we hear um, people you know, citing as to why it's not a good idea to go forward with the prosecution of Trump, that there's no precedent for it. And for that, I would answer that, you know, his his entire presidency was without precedent because he really wasn't like any president of either party that we've had in the past. Uh, he was uh, who who, you know, even the most uh, Republican were still dem- Democratic with a small D and respected transfer of power. Trump was an authoritarian right. from start to finish.
0: And I mean, historically, when when coup plotters have failed, uh, have have not been brought to justice, when failed coup plotters, I guess I should say, have not been brought to justice when there hasn't been that kind of follow up. I mean, what what does that portend for the future?
2: Well, actually looking looking at the history of coups and looking at where we are within it, we're in a really unusual situation because you know, coups were the the most common way for the entire post-war period that authoritarians came to power. And then they if you come to power by coup, there's also a good chance that you will leave by somebody else doing a coup against you. So you right. get into the coup cycle. So a lot of the times, the places coups happen are already repressive. And so if your coup fails, like what happened in Turkey they, in 2016, there was a coup attempt against Erdogan, and those who's a despot. And those people were, it, was, it became, uh, not only everybody was arrested and they're in jail, but it became the excuse for a massive crackdown. An authoritarian crackdown. So we're not in that shape. So (laughs) we're a democracy, so we're pursuing things in a very different manner. But one of the most interesting things I found, I just published an essay today in Lucid on on this: that should Trump be prosecuted. When you have a failed self-coup, when somebody's in office. And they're trying to stay there. That's the self-coup. And that's what Trump was. That's the genre. The leader usually has to leave the country because there's so much opposition within parliament and, you know, whatever the Congress is called, that they have to leave. It happened in Guatemala, it happened in Indonesia. So it's very unusual that the party that conspired in the coup that failed is unrepentant. And it's even more unusual that the failed coup leader might run for office again and everybody acts like that's fine.
0: It really is. um, (laughs) It's stunning when you take a step back and you think about it. How might things look different if the Republican Party were um, responsible enough to condemn the insurrection and and stop pushing uh, the the still ubiquitous lies about voter fraud?
2: Well, the big you know the big turning point was January seventh when certain people Mitch McConnell in the beginning, there were certain people who were um denouncing it, and then uh Trump worked his magic, his threat um uh, we We don't have the full picture of what he did to get a hold of the party. Um, he already had the party in, author- in a very kind of authoritarian discipline. That's how January 6 happened. That's and, not, and by January 6, I don't just mean the actual insurrection. All the all the uh, GOP lawmakers trying to help him overturn the election that only could happen because he had already had such control over that party. But had the GOP, which wouldn't have been that hard to imagine, given that. Trump ha- tried to have Pence killed. And people like Mitch McConnell know very well things that the public didn't come to know till much later. Uh, they could have easily um, discarded Trump as toxic and done something different, gone a different direction. Instead, and this is incredible, um, they doubled down and they embraced the coup. And now the the technique of the coup, the election denial, the violence has become part of the Republican Party.
0: Yes, it's become mainstream, and you're seeing it play out in the States. Um, I want to go back to the January 6th Commission Committee hearings for a second. Uh, A lot of political reporters seem unwilling or maybe incapable of looking at the larger context of these hearings, and they're really focused on the horse race. And I've seen the steady stream of political reporting that show, you know, the polls that are basically focused on how the polls show Americans are, are responding to these hearings. And so the basic storyline is that they are having a modest impact on public opinion. The share of respondents to polls who believe Trump is responsible for the insurrection has gone up by, you know, five or six points, depending on the uh, specific survey. Um, you're also seeing self-identified independence kind of souring on the GOP to a degree. And how much of that has to do with um, the hearings and, and overturning row is something that we we can't really know, but there's movement. So I, I just wanted to ask you to step back a little bit further and kind of give us a a. a a bigger picture sense of this. Do you think these hearings have had an impact, not in terms of you know the midterms coming up, but in terms of deterring another coup attempt in the future or making one perhaps less likely to succeed?
2: Well, because, because of what we said before about the Republican Party, which is basically all in for um, illegal action, Um, it's not, it's not clear that, um, that party and those lawmakers would be deterred by anything. That's, that's the sad fact. Um, now they're setting things up so they wouldn't need to do a a violent coup next time. They, they're setting things up so they can kind of, you know, do things differently with, election, institutionalizing election subversion, right? Using the electoral system, fixing it. That's like, it's called electoral autocracy. That's what you have in Hungary and other places. So they wouldn't need to repeat that exact experience of January 6th. Um, The public though, I mean, the the whole thing about where the GOP is going, they've, we've seen many, heard many stories about how, Its positions are so extreme now that they diverge quite a bit from public opinion on all kinds of issues, including abortion rights. And the thing is that GOP doesn't care. They've stopped caring because they're just out for power. And when you're an authoritarian party, you actually don't care about public opinion. You just want to dominate. So that's a shift that they made. So the answer is they wouldn't be deterred from anything. In fact, all of their violent rhetoric, which is really scary, that it's like to get ahead in the party now, you have to be shown, you know, shooting assault rifles. Yes. Um, and and look what happened, like with Dr. Oz, who was always a, uh, an extremist in some ways, but he used to be for gun reform. And in order to get elected, he had to, you know, make that campaign ad where he's like shooting guns and talking about Second Amendment is, you know, the right to rebel against government, all that stuff. That wasn't who he was before. So all of that lets us think that these are people who would gladly do a coup again.
0: You know, I'm thinking about um, the impact that they're having on elite opinion. I, I think that. You're seeing more aggressive press coverage, um, and I don't know if it's if it's a result of the hearings or if it's just correlated with the hearings, given all the other things that have emerged at the same time. But I, I am sensing a shift, and I wonder if that's something that you know. I'm not optimistic. I'm not sanguine about the future, but at least it it makes people more um, more willing to to call out. Those efforts to subvert future elections, and um, you're seeing some progress in terms of the reforms to the Electoral Count Act. Um, I think that that's something that's potentially a, a, a fairly significant deal. Although, as you point out, um, you know the Supreme Court is also going to hear our case next term, that could give uh, state legislators. Uh, unbridled, unchecked power to determine the outcome of elections, including um, basically stripping the, the power of state Supreme Courts to review their decisions. Um, so the the, the threat is, is very real. But one other thing is that I think that the way that they've laid out this story um, is giving Americans the language to, to even talk about it, right? I mean – I think there was a point where, it, you know, early on you sounded crazy when you said, well, this was a coup attempt because that's something that only happens on like, you know, developing countries. And and I think the public isn't wasn't really ready to to, to even contemplate what that looks like or what that means. And I think that the, the these hearings, which have laid things out in a very cohesive way, maybe, maybe having an, an effect in that sense.
2: Yes, I agree. Um, it, it's, it's been, I mean, I've been out there since 2000, you know, 16 writing, not only writing about Trump, but placing his actions in the frame of authoritarianism when that was a word that nobody used. Yes. i still remember it was in 2017 cnn for the first time had a Chiron, you know a, a caption on screen that used the word authoritarian and i thought oh that's that's great you know all of my efforts and those of others like me um our efforts are paying off we're getting the concept in the system yes but but it's very hard to get people it's because it's scary it, both because, you know, they just don't see the United States as something, as somewhere that these things could happen. Um, and also because it's very scary to think of that. And so authoritarian was used, but the idea of a coup, and, and coups are not, you know, that, not that many people study coups. Um, a third of my book was about coups, and that was the part of research that was new for me. I hadn't studied coups, and I never thought it would be relevant to America. Um, yeah. I remember thinking, should I have so much about coups in this book? But that's how most authoritarians came to power for, in the Cold War period.
0: Right, right.
2: So it's 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 a it's an, a learning process. It's a learning curve for Americans to to see their country as somewhere that's not exceptional that anything can happen.
0: Yeah, it is. It's been a terrifying learning curve for many of us. Um, I want to switch gears here a little bit before I let you go. Um, the Texas Republican Party passed a resolution uh, that uh, a f- that claim that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States. Similar resolution is being considered in Montana. Or you know what? It may have passed by now. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, the Republican parties in Maricopa County, Arizona, uh, Langlade County, Wisconsin, have passed resolutions to that effect as well. This is kind of a new trend, something that's perhaps illustrative of the rapid radicalization of the GOP since 2020. Uh, And this was something that you flagged. And I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on on what this this means, what it may portend um, going forward.
2: Yeah, I was actually flabbergasted when i saw that um, that's why i flagged it because again if you study coups what what the what the the, the playbook for coups is that you try and um de, delegitimize and discredit a sitting government that's what happened in chile now you think, well, no, a coup is a surprise, but you have to prime public opinion long before to create an appetite for a coup. And one of the things you have to do is make the sitting democratic leader just um, seem totally incompetent. And so you remove any, um, you make the public see him as somebody who can't stay there anymore. It uh, is driving the country to ruin. And so when the Texas, um, when the state, you know, the Texas Republicans withdrew, they no longer recognize Biden's authority, (laughs) that is on the way to a coup, whatever it's going to look like. So I just said before that they don't need to perhaps do a violent coup, but it's, I can't, I'm not a um, constitutional scholar or legal scholar, but. It it's incredibly bad that they have decided not to recognize his authority. And this is going on in more subtle ways too. Um, Ron DeSantis, who's very dangerous, he's more smooth. And so he keeps, he sets up Florida as, quote, the free state. And the, the second, I've been writing like about him since 2021, because I saw him and I was like, uh-oh, this this isn't good, this guy. And When he started with this crap about the free state, I thought, well, free compared to what? You know, the tyrannical Biden administration. But it also means he's setting, these people are setting up their states as these like fiefdoms um, for an insurgency, right? And that's all, none none of this is good for democracy, to put it mildly.
0: Yeah, um, they are. Um, they just signed a bill down in Florida that would prevent private companies from um, doing any kind of awareness programs that mention white privilege, male privilege, and the like. So this is a a gag order by the government. Um, it's a real infraction of the. It's a it's a real assault on the First Amendment, unlike many of the complaints we hear about social media companies, moderation policies and the like. And uh, that's just a, an example from this week of how deeply tyrannical these red states are, uh, how, how, how quickly they are moving towards these like tyrannical little fiefdoms. And um, of course, with, with the impacts of robe just starting to you know, be felt in in all of these red states. It's a it's a really um it's a terrifying time and it's ludicrous that that these states are fashioning themselves as free states in opposition to um, oppressive blue states that have things like public health authorities mm-hmm. that are, you know, following science and the like. Um, anyway, I believe we are about out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it.
2: Sure, it's a pleasure.
0: Folks, check out Ruth's um, sub-stack. It is called Lucid. I'd also like to thank Paul Waldman and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank you fine and discerning people for tuning in. Have a terrific day.
1: Anybody that don't believe this can either d- I think we soulmates cause we got so much in common You make them great when you find the proper woman They next to me, put your head on my chest Attraction
2: stimulates me, but it's not all about sense I respect you got a mind and self-sufficient Opinionated, yet know how to listen And what's mine is yours If I'm ballin' you ballin' Tell that other d- he can stop calling Check this out Where the love is,